Welcome to Saltier Politics. This week we have a fantastic discussion with one of my longtime friends from MSNBC, uh, Mark Schwartz. He now works at CBS. And we, Julie, we talked about everything. Yeah, that was actually a really great discussion. We talked about news. We talked about 2016. We talked about 2020. About what's next, neoliberalism, alt, the alt-right kind of rhetoric, where that comes from, which I thought was really fascinating. And he's one of the first people who brought to light that it's important reporting the news to know where a lot of these different points of view come from and they kind of breed and fester. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're everywhere and they're only getting stronger and stronger with the amplification of my friends, the Russians, but right. that continues to be the case. But I also, Julie, wanted to tell you from last week, I think New Yorkers are made. And one of, one of the things that happened to me was so when I was walking to work one morning, uh, a guy asked me for, for money. And for some reason, his story really, I was like, okay, all I had in my pocket was $20. And I never give money, and I never have cash. But I was like, okay, th- this story, he, he must really need it. And then, you know, fast forward a couple weeks later, my friend comes to me, and she's like, Emily, this guy had this really compelling story. I'm like, What? He was a fashion designer and his clothes were left at a police station and he needed money to get to it. And I was just like, crap, I was totally taken and I'm so naive. Well, fast forward a few months later, it's kind of colder out and I'm more covered up, so don't, my appearance is a little different. And this guy comes up to me and starts his story and I'm like, let me finish it for you. You have clothes at a police station, you're a fashion designer and you need it. Give me my $20 back or I'm going to scream. I love that. And so, Were you really going to scream? I would have screamed. I don't know. Like, what would have happened? I wanted, I wanted my money back and he gave me my money back. I, I don't even know, but just being emboldened and just being like not naive. I don't know. Not naive. I felt that was the moment I kind of was a New Yorker. What I don't get is, is this guy hanging out in the same neighborhood all the time? I don't know. I think he was hitting up the same area. Is that right um, by Fox? It, it was t- kind of more Times time Square-esque by the Marriott. What's interesting to me is, why wouldn't this guy move it along so that he wouldn't have to run into people that he's already right. said this well, to? Well, I guess he thinks it's just a constant tourist zone. That's true. But he but, moved downtown. Yeah, so there we go. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> You're no longer a Floridian, which I know you've been trying to shed. Floridian. Floridian yes. that you've been trying to shed for many years. But um, looking forward to talking to Mark and everyone hearing this great conversation. It's a great conversation. All righty. Welcome, Mark Schwartz. I know Mark. We used to PA together at MSNBC. And then he's consistently throughout the years just called me out on my news knowledge and challenged me. To be fair, you call me out too. It's true. It's a two-way street. So who would win? It depends who you ask. It, I think I win, but anyways, every time I see Mark, I have to be up on my Twitter, up on everything. Really? Well, yes. let's do a little test. Like what? Let's see, Mark. Let's see. What, do you, what was your number one? So Mark is a CBS would you, news editor? National assignment editor, yeah. Mark is a national assignment editor. What was your story today that you left on? Okay, so... One big theme uh, as being a national assignment editor is you kind of see trends. You kind of see the the nation in a macro sense because you're constantly getting breaking news, breaking news, breaking news. And the past two weeks, 
it's not the sexiest story in the world, but it's been weather, right? It's been severe weather in the South, in the Midwest. And today, for example, the big thing that was on my plate was uh, a levee broke in Arkansas. Now, we're not talking Katrina level because it's not in the major part of the city. I mean, at this point, it's mainly affecting farmland. But the farmland, it's, it's destroying the farmland as we speak right now. It's heading to town. And the flooding is only going to get worse the next few days. It's going to get worse the next week. More severe weather next week. So my big thing is like, you know, climate change, right? It doesn't exist if you ask our president. True. And that kind of scares me. You know, you, you try to play it straight all the time. And when you hear the president say, well, you know, the science is still out. Well, every week you see a study where the scientists say, huh, it's getting warmer faster than we thought. Or, yeah, we knew that the ice caps were melting. It's melting faster than we thought. The flooding we're seeing right now, it's historic. So you put all these pieces together and what answer do you get? We have a problem. Now the question is, how do you fix the problem? Well, thankfully that's not my job. But I could at least admit that we have a problem. And, you know, every day it's part of my job is saying, America, look, this is happening what are we going to do about it? We'll ask the questions. Well, that's an interesting point because I think, um, I obviously I spent more than a decade at Fox News and, and Fox has a very particular point of view about things. Um, you both said you had met at MSNBC. MSNBC has a particular point of view about certain things. But I often wonder what it's like if you're working at a place like CBS or any of the big three networks that are supposed to be straight news. Um, and the fact that you have to sort of almost present two sides of the story to try to be impartial, but on something like climate change, there really are not two sides of the story. It's the same as saying there are two sides of the story. Everybody, 99% of the people in the world think the earth is round, and then you've got one or two people who think it's flat. Why do you feel compelled to present the flat earth part of the story? Is it so much that you don't want to look like you're pushing an agenda when there's so much blowback from powerful people, including the president, who would accuse you or CBS of pushing an agenda if you were to say, yes, this is man-made global warming? So right off the bat, I would push back a little bit, and I would say the overall coverage of CBS News is, hey, climate change is real. Look what's happening. I mean, on Earth Day, we did a whole special. We had correspondents all over the world showing the effects of climate change. But you also said something a little earlier. Our president is not exactly the biggest believer in climate change. He thinks maybe this is a pattern, this happens before, or it's not human-made. When you have the leader of the free world, whether you like him or not, you have to say, this guy who has an immense amount of power and his party has most of the power in the country, they have all the levers, you have to say that this is where people stand, this is where they stand. So it's not saying, here's one legitimate argument, here's another legitimate argument, you say, here are the two arguments. Here's all the evidence on one side. Here's, you know, what this guy is saying. Right. Well, but it's interesting because I saw, for example, yesterday, um, the president went on a Twitter tirade after Robert Mueller came out and said what he said. And, and CNN counted, I don't know how many things he said that were factually incorrect and actually said, counting up the president's lies. I, I think the, the headline was something along those lines. But the word lies was actually in it. Is that right for a news network, for an impartial news network to actually call a lie what it is, even though all reasonable people understand that, in fact, he was not telling the truth? Or is that going a little too far and being a little too biased? 
it's such and I hate this answer, but it is definitely a slippery slope. Um, when you say someone is lying, you say there's intent behind it, right? Like you're intentionally misleading. And in this case, you can make an argument that he's intentionally misleading, sure. For a network to make that claim without saying, here, here's proof that he's intentionally misleading the public, that's not something that we have. You can feel in your gut. You can like believe it with like 99.9999% of your being, but that's not the job of a network, of a network news. You can point to all the evidence of why that may not be true, but you can't say the president lied today. I mean, you can, but you're not going to win. You're not going to win viewers that way. And I know that's not the point, but if you start losing people that way and people start turning you off because you can say, oh, well, you're just going to bash the guy, then all of the hard reporting that we do on a daily basis will go out the window. So what's the answer? Is it that he misled? He stated something that was false? I, I'm, I'm not trying to be difficult. I just, I'm trying to understand because I believe there is intent behind it. Clearly, um, he was not particularly pleased with what Robert Mueller said. Um, he was trying to push back to defend himself. Um, we know that he's not exactly known for his veracity and has not been since uh, he was pretending to be John Barron with the tabloids 30 years ago, 40 years ago. So the question for me is, what's the right terminology? If you, want, if you don't want to ascribe motive to him, but he's saying something that is demonstrably false, and we understand why he's saying it, because Robert Mueller got up and said something that was completely contrary to what he's been pushing. Robert Mueller did not, in fact, say no collusion, no obstruction. He did say there was obstruction. I mean, he all but said it. He said he couldn't charge the president with it because obviously the Justice Department guidelines prevent that from happening. But Robert Mueller, to me, I don't know how you feel, that was a direct impeachment referral. I mean, that was basically Robert Mueller saying, your turn, Nancy Pelosi. Um, and, and so when then you have the president standing up and saying, no, in fact, Robert Mueller has a conflict of interest here because he's, he wanted to be a member of my golf course, and then when he decided to stop being a member of my golf course, I wouldn't refund his, his five grand or 25 grand or something. I mean, all these absurd things that we know is just not true, um, and his own Justice Department said that Robert Mueller didn't have a conflict, and then proceeded to say, you know, he said there was no collusion, no obstruction. There's gotta be intent there, right? I mean, he's saying it to cover his butt. There's no other reason for him to be saying it. Well, here's my question. Why can't you say all of that? All of that. You don't have to say, today, the president lied to the country. Because once you say that, you know what happens? Half the country stops listening. What's more important, though, for you to inform your viewers of what's going on? Or I'm being devil's advocate here for you to, sure. or for you to speak the truth of that fear or favor of losing viewers. Like, uh, and I say this as the, as the token Democrat at Fox for a very long time. And, and I believe me, I probably had a lot of people turn off the TV every time I'd open my mouth. Um, I didn't really care. I mean, it was my job to, to say what I thought, and it didn't really matter that all these people were, were turning it off now. It might have mattered to Fox eventually, but it didn't matter to me. Um, and so the question is, is that something that should matter? What, what, what should be the, what's, what's the role of hard news today? <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said, the role of hard news is to what? Inform the public. Right now, the public is not doing a great job of being informed, staying informed. You know, we... We know all the, the storylines, you know, people 
stay in their echo chamber. Well, I mean, it's kind of to your to your point with Trump. I think he takes a method of throwing spaghetti out there and seeing what does stick and what doesn't stick. And very much like what I've noticed writing in the news is people read a headline and then they go with that story at the water cooler, not having read the article. So if the headline is Trump says no collusion, you have a lot of people reading this headline or reading that and being like, well, Trump said there is no collusion. You see, I agree with that. I agree. Don't your headline shouldn't be verbatim. Trump says this. Uh, that is or that's my a Chiron on the screen. That is my personal pet peeve as well. I think you can try to have best of both worlds where you could say what the president is saying, call it out with facts, with what's actually happening, but not be so antagonistic by saying, here he goes again lying. Is, there, is it antagonistic to have Chiron's fact-checking him as he's speaking, saying, no, that's not true? See, that for me personally, I don't have a problem with that. Do you think other people do? Do they think that they find that overly antagonistic, that you're essentially disrespecting the president by all but accusing him of lying and you're Chiron? I think, I think at this point, anyone can find a reason to be pissed off by you know anything a journalist does and try to find some way of saying, well, see, this show's bias. I mean, some people found our Earth Day coverage bias because, you know, if you don't think climate change is real, then why are you emphasizing this topic? You know, you can always find a reason to be like, see, you're, you're, you're belong on the side. You're not, you're not down the middle. So then why not say he's a liar if you're going to piss off some people anyway? Because you have the high ground when you say, listen, I'm not calling him a liar. Here is every single fact in your lap. We will give you everything. It'll be well written. It'll be well reported. It'll be double sourced. If you're still believing this, then I don't know what to say to you, right? But like I said, I have I I, I see this all the time. Once you start saying, once you start throwing out names, people just stop listening. And I think right now, what this country really needs is to listen, to listen what's happening, to look what's happening. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, and I, I don't necessarily disagree with you, but I think some, in some ways the media and the rest of us are playing by these Marquess of Queensberry rules. Um, and I'm going to make an analogy, and if people on Twitter who love beating me up on this, I'm not analogizing them to Nazis. But I remember when they're... No, I don't remember this personally, thank God, but I'm reading from history books when, when the Nazis had panzer divisions rolling into Poland and the Polish cavalry came out on horses and try to beat them with horses because that's how they'd always done it. And to me, it's, it's almost analogous to what's going on right now. This guy is playing by a whole different set of rules. He's thrown everything out the window that we all know. Presidents have never behaved this way. Not Richard Nixon, not Ronald Reagan, not Bill Clinton. I'm, I'm thinking of controversial presidents in our lifetime, not one. Um, and now you have Donald Trump, who's essentially calling everything he doesn't like fake news, um, disparaging reporters he doesn't like, only calling on reporters that he does like, calling Kevin Cork, the White House press correspondent, a real reporter and saying, I'm going to talk to him because he's a real reporter. Translation, the rest of you are not real reporters. Um, at which point does the press say, you know what, the way we've done things in the past and playing by these very holier-than-thou Marcus of Queensberry rules is not applicable when you're covering somebody like this. You're not covering a normal person in the sun. You're not covering a normal president. This is not how it's always been. So which point does the media just say, you know what, we're going to start doing things not the way we've always done them, but in a different way because we're not dealing with a, with a similar situation. But what would that times. look like? 
Like oh. in your in your perfect world, what would like the opening of a broadcast start like? I mean, just an immediate fact check. If he said something that is incorrect, you call it a lie and you ascribe motive to him, to it because the reality is he does have motive. Nobody on the in the planet, including uh, whoever is doing, <laughs> I'm losing track of who's doing evening news these days, but um, but. No matter who, I mean, your anchors know it. Your White House correspondent knows it. Everybody in your, everybody at CBS knows it. I'm sure. Why not call it for what it is? He's not saying this because he's ill-informed. He's saying it because he doesn't want to tell the truth, which to me is a lie. There is motive behind it. It's not like he hasn't read the Mueller report. I'm sure he has, or if he hasn't read I the Mueller report. I actually have some doubts about that Well, personally. maybe he hasn't, then maybe he's been briefed on the Mueller report, but the reality is whatever it is, he's full, fully aware that he hasn't been the most transparent, most cooperative White House in the history of special investigations. He refused to sit with the, with, with the White House, um, sorry, with the um, special prosecutor and provide him with information. His son refused to have an in-person interview, so they haven't been transparent. So he can't say that. He knows that's not true. I mean, he's not, unless he's such a psychopath, which I don't think he is, um, I don't think he is, that, that he's not telling the truth because he truly believes that he has been transparent despite the fact that he hasn't actually sat with the special prosecutor. So I think to give him the benefit of the doubt about his mental health, he does know he's lying. So why not just call it out? Once again, this is me personally. This is not, uh, this is not an official CBS News statement, but I don't know what good that would do. Like, I know what you're saying, you know, but like I, in my Mark Schwartz's view... If you start using antagonistic language and just start saying, well, the president is lying again, you know, he's lying about what the Mueller report is saying, you will have people stop. Because I've seen reports, we've done reports before that are objectively controversial. And for whatever the reason, so once again, folks at home, I work in the national desk. For whatever the reason, the number on the national desk is easily reached, you know, so whenever we do something remotely controversial, maybe a little hard on the president, the number of threatening phone calls that we get skyrockets, right? So so what? I want to keep these people listening. I don't, this, the second that people hear like, the president is at it again, the president is lying. They don't hear our facts. They don't hear our reporting. That's important. If we ever want an informed public again, we can't be playing sides in this game. We can't be part of this team dynamic that we're now in politics where everything is a team. And like, there's the media team, there's the Democrat team, there's the Republican team. And it's like, you know, who's going to win today? But he's, he's calling you liars. I mean, he's basically saying you're fake news. So anybody who subscribes to that already doesn't want to listen to you because you're fake news. You know what they're tuning yeah, into. Yeah, but they still are. Whether they like it or not, they still are. And they'll continue to. They'll hate watch you. Trust me. I, I was the queen of being hate watch for many years. I mean, I, I don't know. I, to me... And again, I, I appreciate the role of straight news, and I think the networks have done a good job of it. I think the New York Times, for the most part, has done a jo good job of it, the Washington Post. But what, what the Post and the Times have done, which I haven't seen networks do, is they have started inching more towards ascribing motive to him when he doesn't tell the truth. And um, maybe they're in a different boat because they're print media and they have a much more niche audience, ironically enough, than, than the big three networks do. But... Um, I just feel like we're in a very bizarre, uncharted territory and straight news, um, which by the way, I guarantee you there's nobody who watches, I shouldn't say nobody, very few people who watch Fox News believe that you guys are straight news. I mean, they think you're part of the liberal media and 
those people are, they may hate watch you, but nevertheless, they don't think you're unbiased. I did a class once, and complete aside, um, up at Yale Law School, maybe about seven, eight years ago, before Trump, so maybe even more, maybe like 10 years ago, and on media, and I did it with a reporter, Summon Kim, who's now the Washington Post, used to be Politico, and a few other people, and when she said, yeah, I don't really have a political opinion, I just reported the news, literally the entire class started cracking up. They just didn't believe it. Democrats and Republicans. Well, yeah, that's BS. At the end of the day, we're still human beings with passions, opinions. But she said, I've never brought, I've never brought my personal opinion to any news story I've covered, and she's a very straight news reporter. Um, the entire place burst out laughing. So nobody believes it. And I guess it's, it's uh, in an environment like this where you have a president who's completely um, gutting all standards and norms and the fact that they haven't had a White House briefing in I don't know how many months, uh, I think after a while, you know, you start to get to the point where you start rethinking how you, how, how you cover this White House. But. Well, well, speaking of covering the White House, Mark has really opened my eyes because it was something I never looked at, but a lot of the uh, 4chan and subreddits and about white nationalist rhetoric, it's something that I don't think before five years ago I really needed to research and have a knowledge base about, but there have been really interesting patterns, I guess. Mark has really done his research on this and learning about for example the New Zealand shooter and about red pilling it's something I didn't really know before and you see that's something that I think the mainstream media needs to catch up on right you know we can go on about you know lying falsehood stretching the truth semantics right but one thing the mainstream media network news old media like the times and Washington Post they're slowly catching up to this but it's this rise of this online white supremacist movement, right? So, you know, in the early days of blogs, there would always be like, you know, some hate speech, you know, some bullying. And you'd be like, well, you know, it's just the internet, you know, that's that's what it is. But, you know, you can trace it back to the beginning of the the the, the Trump election that a lot of these people started saying, "Well, you know, I, I, I kind of hear, I kind of hear what this guy's saying. This guy, a little, little wing, a little nod, you know, the, 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 the um, good people on both sides kind of thing." So you're like, "Okay, well, now we have a guy in the White House who, like, may not like straight up say, yeah, he's he supports us, but you know, he he, he gets what we're coming from. So because of that, there's there's been a re re-energization of these people. So you start seeing 4chan and uh, you know, the Donald subreddit, and uh, it's, it's all about red-pilling, right? And what red-pilling is, is extreme right-wing radicalization. It's uh, very pro-West, you know, aka the Proud Boys. You know, they're not necessarily racist, but, you know, if you don't believe in Western ideology, then you're essentially dead to them. Oh, I used to do shows with Gavin McGinnis. He's full-on racist. There's no... There's no question about that. But keep they would argue that they yeah. have like, you know, minorities. But then you also have, you know, uh, uh, other people who, you know, think that, you know, like, you know, blacks go back to Africa, Jews go back to Israel, you know, all that, all that, all that crap. And, um, you know, you would say, oh, you know, back in the day, that would just stay on the internet. Now with the internet, you know, they feel emboldened and they're taking this to the real world, like the QAnon, 
for example, um, you know, QAnon is supposedly this uh, deep state cabal and uh, there's a few government officials with a Q level clearance. And uh, this guy started posting on these blogs and saying, you know, we're going to, you know, destroy the deep state and, you know, Hillary's going to be indicted. And actually, Robert Mueller is actually investigating Hillary, not Trump. So you have all these people, you know, building up all this hope. And you have a guy going to the Hoover Dam, armed to the teeth, you know, saying, like, you know, this is for Q. You know, you have. Uh, um, once again, this is not necessarily QAnon related, but you have the New Zealand shooter talking about being red-pilled. You have the, the Chabad synagogue shooter in his uh, uh, manifesto. He talks about being red-pilled. And this all goes back to this like right-wing radicalization you find on the internet. And the, 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 the thing that news needs to catch up on is like, this is a growing threat. And I don't mean to pick on Fox, but they're in the news right now. Why? Because Laura Ingram yesterday was talking about the Soros globalists, you know, uh, aka Jews, uh, kind of, you know, uh, increasing their influence and, you know, um, uh, kind of like pushing right wingers aside and, and censoring white right wingers. And she said, you know, you have people like Paul Nealon, for example, uh, being censored. Paul Nealon uh, is a... Uh, way to the right of Paul Ryan, ran against Paul Ryan, wildly anti-Semitic, wildly racist, uh, posted a picture of uh, Prince Harry and uh, who, who just got married, Prince, Prince William and... Uh, Kate, Kate, Meghan Markle? Kate uh, Middleton? Yeah, no, uh, the, other, the other couple. I'm bad with the royals. Harry and Meghan? Yeah, 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 and he posted a picture of Megan, but like a uh, a much darker version, and you know he posts a ton of racist stuff, and this is the guy that Laura Ingram says you know is being unfairly censored by whom the liberal media by Twitter oh. by by social media. Well, which brings me to my point. I mean, you have Facebook, which refuses to take down that doctored photo or video, video of Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi, mm -hmm. who who who's not drunk, but certainly looks that way once you've finished doctoring a video. At which point does social media have a role to play here? I mean, has Facebook done enough? No. And has Fox done enough? Because I keep going back to um, this interesting point. We all focus on social media. We all focus on Facebook. But where does this get promulgated to more than Facebook? I mean, this, as you just said, this is Laura Ingram yeah. on a national primetime show watched by probably around 3 million people. Sure. So those are two separate problems, right? So on one hand, you know, what Laura Ingram said yesterday was not straight up racist, right? You, if you really don't know better, if you don't know these people, you think, well, you know, why are these people being censored? They're Americans. They have like every right to free speech. And they, they do. But you would once again think that these are everyday Americans and not some of the most despicable, racist, spewing hate people, propagating misinformation on a constant basis, which leads to the whole like social media problem. It's like, well, are they doing enough? No. Can they do more? Yes. Well, what's the solution? It is, the solution is the amount of manpower needed to fix that is incomprehensible. You need a ton of fact checkers. You need a, uh, a lot of people making sure that these videos don't go super viral that is, is spreading such misinformation. You know, CBS can like report till our face is blue the facts and then you could have some doctored video and some guy on Twitter sees it and they think, well, that's the news. I don't know exactly what it looks like. It's a very tough solution, but social media needs to hire more fact checkers, need to hire people who understand the news. But you know what? 
they're going to be resistant of that because that costs money. Well, but, you know, yes, you're absolutely right. I, I agree with everything you say, except for the fact that Facebook knows it's doctored, and they still haven't taken it down. So why? Well, thankfully, I don't work for Facebook. No, no, but I mean, I'm just, I, it's a rhetorical question. I, I don't understand what, where the limit is to this. I mean, you don't want Russian propaganda. You've, you've made a whole point about the fact that you don't want doctored videos from the Russians. This is not from the Russians. This is domestic. But why are you continuing to keep something up that you know is false? I mean, I guess they're not a news organization, right? They would say that they're a private organization. They can keep whatever they want up. They're not responsible for the dissemination of, of, of real news versus fake news. But nevertheless, they are a huge participant in it and it affected the last election. I mean, there's study after study showing that it affected the last election. So what's up with Mark Zuckerberg? I don't, you know, for, for all the crocodile tears about how we're going to do better, here's a great example. And the fact is they're not intending to do any better. Because they know it's going to come to their bottom line, right? So what's the answer? You know, they, the last thing they want is a lawsuit right now. So let's say they take down all this, all this content, a ton of content, right? You know they're going to have a lawsuit on their lap. Facebook is dealing with how much right now? All across the world, unrelated to this, I'm pretty sure this is the last thing they want to deal with, even though you're right. This is damaging democracy. This is damaging what I do on a daily basis when people come to me with obvious lies and, or, or misinformation, and I ask, you know, well, where did you see that? And they'll say, you know, Facebook. And once again, my, my solution is Facebook needs to hire a huge, huge news division. They need to be no nonsense. If something is a lie or misinformation, take it down. That's my two cents, though. On that Facebook, you can make a legitimate argument that's that's not constitutional. And you know, and then I would say, well, you know, they're your private company; you can do whatever the hell you want. No, it's totally constitutional for exactly for that reason. Government's not making them do it; they can do whatever they want. Um, they can ban whoever they want. It's not a question of. of government telling them to do it. Um, is it. It almost feels like the toothpaste is out of the tube, though, and you can't put it back in. How often do people call you randomly oh, with, with crazy multiple ideas? Times, multiple times a night, yeah. And they reach you? Uh, for some, our number's way too accessible. And what do you say to them? You actually get on the phone with them? I, you know, I try not to debate, that, debate them because, you know, one, I have a job to do. Right. And two, I mean, what I, what I essentially tell them is this. Like, I know you believe X, Y, Z. I implore you to watch our broadcast. We work so hard to get it right. Not some guy in his basement editing a video that's doctored, that slowed down 75%. Please just watch what we do. We work so hard at it. Do you do primarily stuff for CBS Evening News or do you do it for... So the cool thing with what I do is I'm helping out all the shows. So like being in the national desk, you're helping out Evening, the morning show, the website, the, the streaming channel, CBSN, mm -hmm. you know, so, you know, I have my hand in all the jars. Well, I to can speak of gloves coming off, um, Mark and I disagreed very highly during the 2016 election, I think at the beginning, because I have always been a vehement Hillary supporter personally and one of the issues with mark that came up was about neoliberalism and how that is kind of losing a lot of supporters when it comes to younger democrats and the bernie fans if you don't really support a certain issue then they're not going to support you and hillary kind of trying to take the middle of the road uh mark would call me out on that and you're kind of making a parallel to today with biden and how a lot of 
uh, supporters of Biden, he's just he's not catching the time of where Democrats are today. Well, it depends when you say, you know, which time for Democrats, which demographic, right? right. Uh, I'm sure for older Democrats, no offense to older Democrats, who don't know any better, you know, I mean, just a few years ago, you know, I used to think, you know, Republicans are Republicans, Democrats are Democrats, they all believe the same thing. I was young and naive. And um, during the 2016 election, I, you know, I started asking myself, you know, like, well, when Democrats are in power and Republicans are in power, overall, like, why do things overall stay the same? And I think that's kind of when, like, the concept of neoliberalism came to me and started doing a lot of research. And I started to realize, like, why aren't things changing? And it's because on the big issues, when it comes to income inequality, when it comes to how we're we going to deal with climate change, both the center-left and the center-right, they essentially think the same thing. You know, they both don't want to be taxed. They both don't want to do like major, you know, work that needs to be done for climate change because they know it's going to adversely affect, you know, their own pocket in some way. So, you know, you, so what, what Democrats do and like what Hillary does and what, what Biden is doing is, well, they'll take like certain uh, uh, culture issues, right? The culture wars. And, you know, you can set yourself apart. You know, I'm a little more liberal on abortion. I'm a little more liberal. You know, I'm like, I believe in gay marriage. I believe in all trans rights. You know, you do this and that. But that itself affects only a very small segment of the population. But because, you know, the way we cover in the media or the way it is covered in the media, it makes it look like it's the end all be all of American politics. But at the end of the day, you know, what really matters is what's in your pocket, the air you breathe, the water you drink. And at the end of the day, for the past 100 years and the 100 years of neoliberalism, it's been getting pretty bad. You know, the disparity between the rich and poor is getting worse. And that's why you have the rise of Trump, the rise of Bernie, because eventually people are waking up to this and they're waking up to this right now. And they're making a decision of like, which is the route they want to go. And then you have Biden, and he's like the times of the past of the, you know, from the 70s to, I don't know, let's say 2010. And saying, oh, well, you know, he's the nice guy. He's the safe choice. You know, I'm going to, I'm not going to be as mean as Trump, you know. But in terms of your wallet, in terms of your tax dollars, do you think it's going to change in any way? Maybe the tax will be, the rich, the, the tax in the rich will be up a little more in the rich, but it's not going to be what it needs to be in terms of to close the gap between the rich and the poor. It's not going to fix the climate the way it needs to be done. You know, if, 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 the, if the polar caps are melting at, you know, the rate it's melting, I don't know if Biden's plan is going to work per se. Well, so what you're suggesting is what tr a, a populist from the left, right? I mean, the alternative to that is, is somebody who's... If you actually want to see some change, if you actually want to see something happen... That's it. That's a route that we haven't gone, and I'm not saying it's the route that will work because what do I know? I've I don't work in politics, but I know what we're doing right now is not working, and what we have, we've been doing the past fifty years isn't working. Isn't it working though? Because I think about all the things that Bill Clinton was able to accomplish as president, Obama was able to accomplish as president, all of which have been rolled back, and not all of which, but many of which have been rolled back. Um, they were incremental and they were not necessarily um, revolutionary, although in some ways I think back then people considered them to be, and I, I, I am old enough to remember, for example, the gays in the military um, dispute, which was 
off the hook, and you could not even imagine. I don't know if you guys remember this. And it was, you know, considered extraordinarily radical, um, something that now would not be considered radical at all. Um, on tax policy, sure. I mean, you know, tax policy at the margins, but but not necessarily the kind of radical tax policy where you're taxing income over 70% for people making, you know, tens of millions of dollars. Um, but I wonder if those kinds of policies get enacted. Because you look, at, you look at Trump, right? So Trump is very radical, I would say. And Trump, Trump has been able to accomplish exactly two things. One is a, a total realignment of the Supreme Court, but that has to do with the fact that Mitch McConnell has enabled him to do that. It's not that he's managed to get anything done. And two is he did manage to pass a tax plan, which um, has exploded the deficit, but has helped especially pass through real estate corporations like his. Short of that, what has he accomplished? And my question is, what could somebody like a Bernie Sanders accomplish if he is out of step with where people in Congress are? Because unfortunately, in politics, it's always about the art of the possible. And I don't know that he's got a Democratic Party who will follow him like that, because most Democrats, the way we want a Democratic House is a moderate district. It's not a Bernie Sanders-type district. Um, certainly no Republican will go along with him. So it's great that he's proposing all this stuff, but it's also, think about this practically, what are you actually going to get with the President Sanders? And you know what? I do not have an answer to that. But I just want to go back to what you said earlier. You know, you were talking about, you know, Bill Clinton and, you know, the gays in the military and, like, the incremental gay rights. Let's say, like, the gays in the military example you gave, right. right? Objectively good, right? We can both agree it's objectively good. Affects what percentage of the population, like, what, point zero zero blah, blah, sure. blah, right? And it's a, it becomes magnified because it's a, a historic occasion. But at the end of the day, the biggest issues, like I said, dated earlier, status quo. No. And that's the problem. And you are right. You know, if, if there was a President Bernie, a President Warren, you know, the, the ones on, on, on the far left, you know, will anything get done? Well, you know, I'm just as skeptical as you. I'm, I'm, I ultimately land where you land. But I don't, I, I, I guess I kind of laugh a little bit at like politicians who act like they're a breath of fresh air when at the end of the day, you know, their drone policy is essentially the same. You know, they're still droning. You know, Obama droned a ton. Yeah. Obama separated, you know, a ton, just like the president. Not at this rate, but separations did occur. These are big issues. So, you know, when these politicians act all high and mighty and, you know, say, well, you know, I'm the change and I'll be nice. And I'm like, yeah, well, you'll probably have a nicer tone. But, you know, at the end of the day, what's changing? Is the, the gap between the, tac- uh, between the rich and the poor getting smaller? Well, no, when has that happened in the past 100 years? In the 50s, but not in a long time. I think, you know, look, I think what's, I think what's troubling Democrats right now, and, and I, I don't know the answer to this, is do they want somebody, is the goal to elect Donald Trump or is the goal to have a wholesale reset of the country and, and where it's going now? And you run the risk by, by nominating a Elizabeth Warren or a Bernie Sanders, um, with potentially nominating somebody who's not as electable, quote unquote, um, as a Joe Biden. But you're absolutely right. Joe Biden is not a breath of fresh air. He's been around. <laughs> I think he got elected the first year before I was born. I think he got elected in 72. Um, so he hasn't been around for five minutes. Um, and, and so that's, I think, the struggle for a lot of Democrats. Do they elect the guy that they think is most likely to beat Donald Trump, or do they run the risk of just setting the whole world on fire? 
Tricaris, whether they want to And once again, not my call to make, but wasn't that the same question in 2016? Sure. And sure. what happened? There's no question about it. But I think 2016 was a little bit of a different story. You had, first of all, an antipathy for Hillary Clinton personally that you just don't have for Joe Biden these days. Um, that's one. And two, um, you had people saying after eight years of Obama, we'll give Donald Trump the benefit of the doubt. Things are going pretty well. We're kind of sick of Democrats. Um, let's see what this guy can do. We now know what this guy can do. Um, and I think if Joe Biden had been the nominee in 16, I'm not so sure that things would have been different. But I don't know. I mean, this is, this is a struggle, and I, and I do work in Democratic politics, and I, sure. this is a struggle that I think a lot of Democrats are going through, and it's a struggle that I go through. I still haven't decided who I like. I mean, I love Elizabeth Warren's positions. Um, I think she's been the most thorough and thoughtful and um, consistently progressive candidate in ways that I like of anybody running, I don't know whether she is electable. I may be totally wrong. I may be completely scarred by the Hillary experience, so I don't know. I mean, the Pocahontas thing stuck with me that she just took the bait with, with, with Trump, and I can't forgive that, but I, I don't know the answer. I mean, I, I don't know. It's hard. I mean, it's hard to decide for a lot of Democrats as to who the right person is. For sake of biases, let's just remove all names, right? Right. I just hate that's kind of where we are as a country. You know, we, we're not voting for who makes us happy who we want to vote for who where our values align the most in the primary cycle we're already thinking well let me think two steps ahead mm -hmm. and i kind of think that's kind of what's led us into a situation we've been in right now and i'm not even just meaning 2016 i mean for a while now you may very well be right i mean that's that's something to think about it's unfortunately my job to think three steps ahead because my job is electing people but um if i'm Emily, for example, if my job is not to my job is not to think about strategy and just to vote for who you want to vote for. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Emily? Who do you, who do you like? I like Buttigieg. Buttigieg. Um, Buttigieg. But I mean, it's when some of the like those cultural issues do impact you. Gay marriage does impact me, and it's like where those cultural issues meet. That's going to be one of the major things of my life. I'm voting for what I think is right and is important to me. So I'm going to vote for that person who makes me happiest. I always tell all my friends who are intimidated by politics to pick the three most important things in your life and vote with whoever's going to advocate those three things best, just to break it down and make it simple. So I think that's your answer right so there. My, that's my way. Like I'm not thinking, I'm thinking strategy for my life personally. And I think it's most people. I mean, I think right. most people sit around and I think about this all the time, especially in the summer when I'm sitting here working till 3am on some political issue. And I'm thinking, the average person is not thinking about this right now. The average person is sitting around trying to figure out how to put their kids through college, how to pay the mortgage, um, how to make ends meet, and they tune in when it starts to affect them. And so that's a great question about impeachment. I mean, this is the, the issue of our time this week, where people are talking about whether should you impeach, should you not impeach, is this something that we need to focus on? You know, I don't know, and I've been around um, the country over the last six months quite a bit and, and listening to focus groups and other issues. And I'll tell you, nobody's talking about impeachment. They're just not. Right. It's not something that people care about. I think it's something that the people who watch MSNBC or Fox or CNN religiously, those people who literally have them tuned on 24 seven 
Um, but that's fewer than 10 million people altogether in the aggregate, right? Including probably the viewers who watch you guys. The viewers who watch you guys are the ones that are tuning in to see the news for half an hour, and then they're moving on to think about lacrosse games or, or soccer games, whatever they're thinking about. Um, so if you're not talking to your hardcore base, and Twitter is not real life, but, but, but not the people who are on Twitter 24-7 Twitter amplifying their, their positions, they don't really care about impeachment. I mean, you, you ask people what they care about, they care about health care, right? Right, <laughs> right. I mean, we have embeds right now when you know, they're going to all the town halls that the, the candidates are going to, yeah. and Russia is brought up like 2% of the time, 3% of the time. I'm shocked it's that high. Yeah, it, it, might yeah. be, it might even be yeah, less. Yeah, you know, yeah. my, my point is like it's rarely brought up, and it's like what you said. It's the bread and butter issues. It's, you know, my health care. It's, you know... My taxes, my income. Yeah, I mean, people are saying, great, my, the economy's doing well. It still doesn't mean that I can afford to pay fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year to send my kids to college. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that I think is completely missed by television talking heads. And I, and I actually see a huge separation between what you do at CBS or, or, or NBC or, or ABC versus what cable news is. Cable news is 24-7, stuck in this whole impeachment issue, stuck in Robert Mueller, stuck in, in Russia, stu stuck in Russian interference. I happen to think Russian interference is a massive, massive story. I wish more people paid attention to it. But the reality is it doesn't directly, they don't think it directly affects them. It does, but they don't think it does. It's not a better and better issue for people. And I, and I think that's what, what you said, Emily. To you, marriage equality is important because it's important to you personally, right? Right. Um, to the average liberal, I would say um, it's important to them because they believe it's a question of, of moral justice, but it They're, doesn't, doesn't, they it's don't. It's not going to change their vote. It's not going to change either. their vote because it's not really affecting them um, unless, unless they want to marry somebody in a, in a same-sex relationship. And so I think that's the kind of stuff that is too often forgotten in, in, in the news world, especially the cable news world. How... Would you now, if you're advising a candidate, when they're going on a lot of these cable news shows and they have three to four minutes to get their point across, what advice would you give them today as opposed to four years ago? Well, first of all, they don't get to choose what they want to talk about, as you know. Right. Um, you're totally at the mercy of the anchor. Um, I would, I'm a huge believer, and this is going to sound very cynical, and I'm sure people don't want to hear this. I'm a huge believer in polling. Huge. I, I spend more time looking at focus groups and, and, and quantitative polls than I think most people do. And they should talk about whatever their data tells them to talk about. And if it's healthcare, that's great. And if it's marriage quality, that's great too. And I'm sure that what Cory Booker and Kamala Harris are saying in South Carolina is very different from what they're talking about in, in New Hampshire or Iowa. Um, and uh, I'm using them as an example. It could be Elizabeth Warren, it could be Bernie Sanders. Um, Bernie Sanders, I think, has a, you know, you ask me what makes a good campaign. In 2008, Barack Obama had a very quick tagline. It was hope and change. What was John McCain's? Nobody remembers, right? Nobody knows. Conversely, in 2016, make America great again. We all remember what it was. You knew what it stood for. America's not great now, but we're going to make it great again. What was Hillary's? I'm with her. That was the dumbest tagline of all time. <laughs> it's not about her. Why are we with her? Like, What's that going to do for me? The best one now is Warren's, right? I can I can change that, or I right? Is that it? I don't even know what I, I don't know what they are, but I, I well, that's the problem now. There's not a great one. Right There's not. Now. They'll come up with something. Yeah. It's early. It's early days. But but Bernie's got one. Bernie's all about income inequality. I mean, say what you will about Bernie Sanders. 
he's all about income inequality. You know, the rich are getting theirs and, and the rest of us are getting screwed. Not in so many words, but that's what he's saying. You know, that's what he stands for. Do you think in your, in your yeah. view, do you think that's still as effective in 2020, like the tagline, you know, the campaign, you know, phrase? I, I, it's not the, the phrase isn't important, but it's the message that it convey, conveys, right? You don't have, Elizabeth Warren has 10, 15 plans about everything. I don't really know the details of any of them. People aren't going to sit there. As I said, people are worried about putting their kids through college or paying the mortgage. They're not going to sit there and um, worry about what Elizabeth Warren's 17-point plan is to, to fix climate change, to your point. Um, I'm, although I'm sure it's a great plan. But, but the tagline's only good insofar as you know what that person stands for. So if I were considering voting for Donald Trump, I'm looking around, I'm thinking, okay, I live in western Pennsylvania. Um, the mines have closed, the steel mills have closed, I don't really know what to do. Oh wait, this guy's gonna make America great again. Translation, he's gonna bring those things back. And what's Hillary's tagline? I'm with her. Well, why am I with her? Why? What, what, for, to, for why? Why do I care about her? I don't care about her, I care about me. Um, so again, it's not, the tagline's not important. It's, it's, it's what it conveys. Um, and I think that a successful candidate will probably be able to sum up in a nutshell what they stand for. Donald Trump was brilliant at marketing. He's one of the best marketers in the world. That is a great marketing slogan. To all the forgotten people out there, I'm going to make your country great again. Translation, it's gonna be like the good old days. The good old days being Ohio 1950 if you're white and, and Protestant. But, um, but nevertheless, that appeals to people. But so, that scares me. Only because it's void of policy. Totally. So, so well, what was Donald Trump's policy? Right. No one well, knew. You, you got it exactly right. You know, it was, you know, it was this feeling of just like going back to like the good old days, right? But that doesn't tell you anything. But what was Obama's policy? I mean, Obama had plan after plan after plan in 08. Do we remember? Close Guantanamo? I mean, no, but think about it. Do we remember? Right, exactly. <laughs> Wait, that, that worked out well. But do we remember anything about what he stood for? Obama was an avatar and everybody projected their hopes and beliefs onto Barack Obama. I don't think that people, he, he did stand for things. He had a very robust campaign platform, but nobody knew what it was. They just saw him as an agent of change and an agent of hope after years of war and after years of being let down by the Bush administration and Katrina. And, you know, we're gonna, again, it, it was a kind of a plan to make America great again. It was just his version of it, hope and change. Um, so as much as we're sitting here talking about policy and who's got the best policies, and again, Elizabeth Warren has great policies. I agree with everything she's doing. But is she going to light the world on fire? I don't know. Meanwhile, Obama did light the world, world on fire, not because of his policies, because of who he was. Same with Trump. And your Buttigieg, he kind of has that Obama-like calmness to him. That It's like, don't worry, I got this. Let's lower the temperature a little bit. Like, Is that, right. is that what's kind of drawing you to him? Yeah, what's up with him? Why do you like him? I, I feel like he can all he can appeal to a wide range of people because the way in which he's calmed a lot of the questions, how he's answered them on religion, first of all, because he is religious and he does hold his Christian religion close to him while also being gay and it not being mutually exclusive. But the way in which he's calmly able to break that down and be like, no, there are just certain aspects of I think you can be, love everyone and that's part of my religion and I don't ascribe to the hatred part that people use. 
in the way he's able to step back and bring, bring, bring it down a notch, like you said, Mark, that makes me see that he could unite a lot of people in a way that I love Warren may not be able to. But here's what's interesting about what you say. Before Pete Buttigieg ever graced the national stage, Cory Booker was talking about this whole thing about love and we could all come together and we could all be united and, you know, love, love, love for, for I don't know, I met Cory Booker in 2002. <laughs> he's been saying that ever since. And yet he's at 1% or 2% in the polls and Buttigieg is surging. So it's not about what he's saying. It's about how he's saying it and it's about who he is. Right, um, there was an inauthenticity to Cory Booker that I felt. Inauthenticity. Inauthenticity. But that's interesting. So it is all about personalities we just talked think, about. And it's about right. the would you have a beer with him issue. Like oftentimes I don't quite agree with that. Like I want to be, I want my president to be smarter than me. I, who's going to press a button. I don't think Bush was. I don't think Trump is. I thought Obama was. I think Hillary would be well-informed um, and may not be able to grab a beer with Hillary but or Warren, but I'd want them in charge. But I think that's part of the personality issue. People see them as able to have a conversation with. See, I think it's almost evolved into a popularity contest. And the whole thing about Trump that I thought was interesting is that people said, well, he's really authentic. He's really, really authentic. And it's not that he's authentic. In fact, he's incredibly inauthentic. But Authentically inauthentic. Authentically inauthentic, right? He spoke to people in ways that they totally got it. He's like, he's my kind of guy. You know, he's speaking about... He says it like it is. You know, he says it like it is. Well, no, he just says a lot of politically correct things. And he's your crazy uncle at Thanksgiving. You know, that guy's really authentic too. But I don't know that you want him in charge of the nuclear arsenal. Um, But... It, I think that just proves my point, right? Like, yeah. Buttigieg, that whole vision of love, and I'm religious, and I'm Christian. I mean, Cory Booker was studying Kabbalah as a Rhodes Scholar, and I'm not joking, with, with who's, who's that rabbi who drives me crazy? Shmuley. Shmuley. He and Shmuley were at the Oxford Orthodox Union together. And Shmuley's hung around a lot of Cory Booker events until they had a falling out. But, um, but I, I only say that because... Uh, it's it's fascinating to me that here is Pete Buttigieg, who you like for the very same things that Cory Booker has been pushing for 20 years, and yet poor Cory stuck at one or two percent. And Buttigieg, is it because he's gay? Is no, it is, is it because not not for you, but is it that people no. think he's authentic because he's 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 out and he's talking about his husband and he's I a think millennial? It's about just message, just how you get the message out. Because oftentimes you're in a meeting and someone says, "Hey, how about this idea?" And then someone else will say it in the same way, and you're like. I just said that, but it's the way of getting getting it out. And I think, like for example, like the difference between MSNBC and Fox, it's just like messaging. Fox sometimes simplifies it and says it in a way that I just that people just grasp. Whereas Fox MS- is great at messaging, right? Whereas mm-hmm. MSNBC, they may say a message that's that's right, but it's just not in a way that's easily easily graspable. I agree. I also have an alternative theory, okay. but I also agree with your theories, hundred percent. You know what's the difference between Buttigieg and Booker? You know, Booker's been in D.C. for a decent amount of time, mm, couple Bud- years. Yeah. yeah, and Buttigieg has been the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, so he does not have the stink of D.C. on him. So when you're in D.C. for X amount of time, you're gonna cast some votes that are going to make you unpopular so like what do people associate booker with well people say he's in bed with the pharmaceutical industry right that's a, that's a big knock on him mm-hmm. also you know he does these like you know 
you know, whether you like it or not, you know, these like really big showboaty things when he has these hearings, right? And you could love it, you can hate it, but people have seen it. People have seen his show before for a while now, especially if you're in like the tri-state, New York tri-state area. So, you know, you, you kind of know what he's about. Buttigieg just has that new car smell. You know, you're so right, because I think there's always, uh, timing is everything. Like literally, Cory Booker, I wonder if he had run when he was mayor of Newark. Like, well, Barack Obama, he couldn't have done that because Obama was um, president for most of it. But Booker got elected mayor of Newark, I want to say 2006. I may be wrong about that. Could he have run in 2008? Maybe. I mean, maybe. I don't know. Too soon, obviously. But, but uh, timing is everything. I mean, Chris Christie is a great example. In 2012, if Chris Christie had not run for re-election as the governor of New Jersey and had just said, screw this, I'm going to run for president. Everybody's begging me to do it. Nancy Reagan's begging me. Henry Kissinger. Uh, Roger Ailes was having him over at his house begging him. Rupert Murdoch was calling I mean, uh, You had the gamut of the Republican establishment begging him to run. It was a new car smell. It was a new car. It was a new, <laughs> no, totally. It was a new car smell. I love yeah. It was. You're so right. It was a new car smell. And he said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to wait you know, until 2016. But now he's under the microscope. So everything he does, people are like, yeah, but but yeah, but then so he has a second term as governor. Bridgegate happens, um, a whole bunch of other things happen, and suddenly, much like with Cory Booker and Buttigieg, to your point, a more brash, more quote unquote authentic version of Chris Christie arrives named Donald Trump. He out Christie Christie. He out Christie Christie. I mean, Christie's like the poor man's Donald Trump, except Christie actually is is not completely psychotic. So at least in my view, um, so. He, like, poor Chris Christie, like, much like poor Cory Booker, I think, just got out, out trumped or out by by people who are the new car smell version of them to some extent. Right. I'm sorry, but this only drives me crazier, though, because throughout this conversation, you know, the one thing we haven't talked about is policy positions. It's just like... <laughs> You know, he was more brash than the other. You know, he, you know, had a more authentic aura about him. The new car smell, not the, oh, well, but this policy was a little better than this policy. Well, well think about it. What, what, were, what were Trump's policy positions? It was build the wall, right? Mm-hmm. That's it, build the wall. Again, very simple. And then after that, it was ban the Muslims. Um, and, but that's not why people voted for him. I mean, some people did. Certainly, there were some people who said, yes, he's going to keep Mexicans out and, we're, you know, we're going to... Bring America, but again, we're going to make America great again by translation, keeping out the other, who we never had to deal with back in 1950s Colorado or Ohio, wherever you know the good old days were. Um, but there's certainly no policy thought to it. I mean, what was it going to be? I'm going to pay for you know we're going to build the wall. It's going to pay for it. Mexico. Okay. I mean, there's your there, there's your 70 page policy paper, right? There's your policy document. But he's also like the he was very big on the trade deals too. And the trade, but same thing. Yeah, we're gonna have fair trade. We're gonna get rid of NAFTA. But it's all part and parcel of the same nativist, populist viewpoint. But there was no policy attached to it. But what, remember what I was saying about like the past like 50 years, right? right? It's like people are starting to, they don't know how to describe it. They don't know how to feel it. They don't know how to like ail that feeling of like, well, I feel like I'm being taken advantage of over the last few decades. I know that now. I'm awake to that now. Now, these people, where do they go? So a lot of people heard Trump's message, and you can make an argument that it is not the most politically correct message, but he, they heard him speaking to their woes. No question. No question about it. And Hillary was a continuation of the same. And 
I remember having a conversation actually with Maggie Haberman of all people um, who for some reason is coming under a lot of fire for the Hope Hicks column, which is what's making me salty this week, which I will talk about in a second. But um, many years ago, we were saying, why is she taking money from Goldman Sachs? Like, how's that going to look? And I think she profoundly misunderstood what, how that was going to feel. I think Obama profoundly misunderstood and Eric Holder made a massive mistake as attorney general to not prosecute anybody on Wall Street responsible for the crash. And there are plenty of people who should have been. I mean, countrywide, I can't, I can't think of how many people should have been um, indicted for what happened. Um, and they weren't. And I think it gave people even more sense that if this were us, we would have been prosecuted in 30 seconds. If I, you know, if, if, if I submit a false mortgage application, guess what, they can probably prosecute me. But these guys, because they're worth tens of billions of dollars, are too powerful to be prosecuted. And I think it completely fed into that narrative of there is an us versus them and people who are too rich to get indicted or to get prosecuted are too rich and the rest of us have to pay the price. And um, I think Obama made a massive miscalculation not going after Wall Street, um, or at least one or two, just throw a hostage on the tarmac just to, just to prove his point. And I think that's, what re that's one of the end results of what's going on. I mean, there's so many things that Obama could have done to temper this, this craziness that was going on. But I think all of us back then in the Democratic Party thought, oh, okay, it's just a Tea Party. Those guys are nuts. There's not that many of them. Okay, they won Congress. But it's not just the Tea Party. It's these people who are seeing their lives transformed by new technology who believe coal mines are gonna come back even though I don't care who you are, you can never bring coal back the way it used to be, you can never bring steel back the way it used to be, um, or manufacturing. I mean, there's new manufacturing you can engage in but not old manufacturing. Um, so I think those people were angry. Then I just have one last question and yes. make it full circle. Do you think Biden could speak to those people? Yes, I do. I think Biden can speak to them because Biden is one of them and I think if Trump does a good job, and he does do a very good job of this, he will paint Biden as an out-of-touch elitist um, who's been in Washington too long to really appreciate their concerns. But I think Joe Biden's also somebody that people know to be a guy from Scranton, Pennsylvania, who took the Amtrak down to Washington as a senator for 40 years. And, and I, I do, I do. Um, whether he's going to do anything about it, it's a different story. But can he, <laughs> can he sell it? Sure. Um, can Mayor Pete from, from South Bend, Indiana sell it because he's from Indiana? Sure. Do I think Sherrod Brown would have been a great candidate who could have sold that in a great way? Yes, I do. Sadly, he's not running. So that's my two cents. I don't know. I think Biden sometimes is like he wants to go back to the way things were in 2015 back again. And I think a lot of Democratic younger people don't want to go back at all we want to go forward and it's really hard with biden who sometimes just sees i think trump is more of an aberration uh to to to, to move to move forward with something when people have been entrenched by the status quo for so long and a lot of younger people at the aocs the you know a lot of these younger politicians are, are aren't looking back we're looking forward and, and biden i think does still represent a lot of that looking back. Do you think they don't vote, though? Do you think they stay home knowing what's at stake? I hope whoever the Democratic candidate is, they'd vote, because at the end of the day, they're going to... You'd rather have someone moving in your lane, maybe not as fast, than not at all. But 
I think at this point they see what what happens when you don't vote or you vote for Jill Stein. But I, I mean, a lot of people forget that more Hillary voters voted for McCain than um, Bernie voters voted for Trump. Really? Yes. So, you know, we can say that, but, you know, no one knows anything. We'll see what happens. That's true. That is the one thing I learned. Yeah. Nobody knows anything. Thank you so much for, this is a great discussion. Thank you so much for coming and Thank talking Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's been so much fun. You got to come back. We'll have some beer or whatever your drink yeah. of choice is next time. Let's do it. Everything about that conversation does not make me salty because I think we, I don't, we, we got into a lot of issues. I wish we had more conversations like that. It's true. Except now that we have no Game of Thrones to talk about. Well, every, every time I leave a conversation with Mark, too, I feel like I've just kind of run a race because he, he keeps me on my toes and he devil, devil's advocates me all the time. So if I'm not well-read on an issue, he'll just call me out right to that and be like, okay, this conversation is not going anywhere. That's true. That was a great discussion. I love What's making you salty? Well, what's not, it's not quite making me salty, but it's making me think. Um, I recently heard a story on NPR about South African Olympic champion runner Castor Samoya, who just filed an appeal in the case that hinges on her right to compete as a woman. So she's intersex. And that means she has a little more testosterone and is not transgender. But so what happened is the IAAF, uh, the governing body for track and field, imposed regulations arguing that the rules are necessary to create a level playing field in women's events. So she has to take a medicine to put her testosterone level levels down. And so she's now um, appealing this. So, and she won the gold medal two times in the 800 meters. So now as a former, not Olympian, but I ran track and I played basketball and all different sports, you know, some people are just born taller. I'm not making another girl who's born 6'2", who's going to be better at basketball than I am, to like walk on her knees to evil, even the playing field. I think intersex people were born that way, and I don't think that they should be forced to take medicine to make their testosterone levels come down. It, it That's was just, an excellent point. It's a, it's a great quandary because um, eventually you're going to have people who are transgender want to compete right. in the Olympics or, or other championships, and... Where do you draw the line? I mean, I don't know the exactly. answer to that. That's actually an excellent, excellent question. And, and it got, I was lost in my thought for about 20 minutes today. I just, where, where do you go? With this issue with intersex, okay, this woman was born that way. There are some people with just who have more inclined to be better at different sports. Some people with fast twitch or slow twitch muscles who are better sprinters or better long distance. That's a great question. So Let's say Bruce Jenner had not been Bruce Jenner, but had decided to become Caitlyn Jenner back in his Olympic, Olympic days. Right. And decided to compete as a woman because that's, that's what Caitlyn Jenner identifies as now. Right. Um, it's not enough that Bruce Jenner was an amazing Olympian as a guy. Could you imagine what right. the competition would have been as a woman? And so does that give her an unfair advantage on the other hand, she is a woman. She identifies as a right. woman. That's how she was born. Right. So I don't, that's a, you know, it's a fascinating question. It's a question I think the Olympic Committee and other committees will have to really contend with. Right. Um, and not just that. I mean, uh, high school athletes. 
Right. I mean, as, as, as some of these boys are, are transitioning and, and, and I start identifying as girls um, and playing girls' teams, does that give them an unfair advantage? Um, those are really, those are interesting, interesting issues. Right. So I, I, yeah, maybe you'll be on your commute home. Just, I, I don't know where the line goes and. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know the answer to that. Um, I'm, you know, who's, I'm making myself salty this week. <laughs> Actually. <laughs> Please do tell. I will explain. So I listened to Robert Mueller very carefully the other day and I listened to, um, obviously I read his report and I keep saying again that unless you've read every word of that report, I don't want to hear from you on Twitter. Um, if your news is being filtered through um, Fox News or MSNBC or anything else, um, you should read it for yourself and draw your own, draw your own conclusions. But I also um, will say this. So to me, what Robert Mueller said was a, was a clear, maybe I'm misinterpreting, but I don't think so, a clear impeachment referral. He was basically saying, yeah, in so many words, we think this guy obstructed justice. We didn't pursue it because Justice Department guidelines won't let us pursue it. So we are going to, um, essentially it's up to Congress to act. And we just had this discussion with Mark where I know the American people are not sitting here clamoring for impeachment. They have better things to worry about. And Nancy Pelosi's calculus says, why don't we focus on the issues that the people really do care about, whether it's healthcare or it's the environment or... Um, college affordability or, or any of these other bread and butter type issues, but um, income inequality. But on the other hand, if impeachment was not created as a tool by the founders for something this brazen, which is a president clearly obstructing justice, and if you read the Mueller report, you will see that, um, what was impeachment invented for? And does it take attention away, as, as we talked about with Mark, from from issues that people really care about, or is it morally the right thing to do because that's what the founders created as a tool, as a check on the president, when the Justice uh, Department and the courts cannot address it because he's a sitting president? I'm leaning towards yes. Um, I'm leaning towards the fact that yes, they should open up an impeachment inquiry because I think it's after reading that report and listening to Robert Mueller, how can you not? And if you don't open impeachment up on this, what else can you possibly, what else would rise to the level of impeachment? But I don't know. I mean, Nancy Pelosi has a point. So it's really, I'm making myself salty because I'm not kidding. I woke up at two o'clock in the morning, maybe two nights ago. For some reason, this was running through my head, and I couldn't go back to sleep, and, and nothing stinks worse than when I can't sleep for four hours, and I have to get up and take care of a seven-year-old. So I, I don't know. I, I, I made myself salty. I continue to make myself salty with this dilemma. What do and you think? And then you're like, why am I staying up thinking about this? I'm That's exactly. I'm, I'm right like, now. why? <laughs> like, I'm salty because I actually am spending time thinking about this rather than A, sleeping, or B, thinking about something that has nothing to do with my work life. But um, I mean, I think you do elect people into office to to take care of the the, the issues like healthcare and things like that. But also, your international security. If if something is going wrong with Russia and that they could impact our daily lives, and but keeping that quelled, I I think that's something that is important. And what you do elect people to do to to keep. Yeah, but I think if you go down the impeachment road, um, that's all anybody's going to be talking about. Right. I mean, it's you know, it's going to be the Watergate hearings all over again. It won't be about the, the policy. It issues, won't, won't be about policy. Although we just, I think, determined that nobody cares about <laughs> policy. That's not true. People do care about policy. They just don't care about um, these issues. So I don't know the answer to that question, and it's making me salty. And I'm hoping that somebody 
convinces me one way or the other soon so I can stop making myself. Get some sleep. I can get some sleep and stop being salty. There you go. Awesome. Till next week. All right. Bye, everybody.